there, welcome to another Dishcast from a very rainy Provincetown, my last podcast from Provincetown, heading to DC this week. And we have someone really kind of special on it, Vivek Ramaswamy, presidential candidate. He is an entrepreneur and a Republican candidate for the 2024 presidential race. He founded a biotech company, Roivent Sciences, after working as an investment partner at a hedge fund. He's also the author of many books, including Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims. Just a quick reminder that coming up, we have Leo Sapir on the treatments evolving of children with gender dysphoria. We have Ian Baruma on his new book, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II, and Spencer Claven, the young, brilliant reactionary who wrote How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. And we also have Martha Nussbaum, Martha Crawford, Matthew Crawford, David Brooks, Pamela Paul coming up. A really pretty stellar lineup, but I'm particularly thrilled to have today Vivek, who is challenging everyone else, including Donald Trump, for the presidency of the United States of America, and Joe Biden, for that matter. A very long-shot person to come into the Republican race, but I, for one, am thrilled the more the merrier, I think. And also, I think Vivek has some interesting ideas that are worth airing and worth... That's what primaries are for, airing ideas to some extent or other. Vivek, thanks so much for coming and, and welcome to the DishCast. It's good to be on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Tell me, because I do this always with everyone when I have them on here. Tell, talk, tell me about where you were born and how your parents influenced you when you were growing up. Yeah, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad chose to come there, of all places, from halfway around the world in southern India. He was from Kerala in the southern tip of India and came for an education first at NC State, but then he landed in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he worked at GE. My mother came over afterwards after you know they had you know they had they got married to us after being introduced by their families in India. So he brought her over. She was a geriatric psychiatrist who treated patients in nursing homes in Southwest Ohio. And we had a you know we had what over time became a middle class upbringing in in Cincinnati, Greater Cincinnati. Probably started in a more modest version of that and ended up in an upper middle class upbringing by the time I graduated from high school. What what and what would make a successful Indian person want to move to the United States? That tells you something about your parents. Not everyone does. What was yeah. what was their motive in doing so, and how did that come about? You know, it's it's funny you bring that up. I mean, just as the kid of your parents. It's hard to see your parents when you're growing up as anything but like these fixtures in your life. You don't think of them as human beings right. in the same sense, right. right? They're your parents. But only recently have I begun, you know, maybe after becoming a father myself, begin to understand my mom's and my dad's headspace in making what is a wild decision, really, yeah. to pack your bags and go halfway around the world. And it's particularly wild for both my parents, but my dad in particular, because he was not from like a city in India, right? He, this was not a cosmopolitan upbringing that he had. Mm -hmm. He was from rural Kerala mm -hmm. in the middle of, I mean, it's like, we're talking boonies of India. And it was so, he was so particular. I mean, there was a part of him that it was so important to him growing up. So we would spend our summers, certainly through elementary school and much of junior high school, going back, spending the majority of our summer in the village where he was born. And there couldn't be a starker difference from first world United States. Tell me about that village. 
I mean, when you went oh, there yes. as a kid, what was your what, what were your first impressions about it? Well, I, I have to be honest. As a kid, I, we were never thrilled to go, <laughs> just because it was like very uncomfortable. It's a long time, long way away. In a physical sense, I mean, it was very uncomfortable, right? Uh, the other kids, I was I used to watch the NBA. We never got to watch the NBA Finals because we always got there in the part of June before the NBA Finals played out. So we would read in the print newspapers. There would be one little column in the Indian newspapers of whether the Phoenix Suns or the or the Chicago Bulls were winning, and so we would await that to read it. But it was like we were attached to the world we were in in the United States, and I think part of the dad's my dad's point was to show us don't get too attached to that, you know, artifice around you. This is part of the world too. In fact, very much part of the world where I grew up. And so, regular blackouts. You know, you, you'd have electricity for part of the day. Uh, no Western toilets, certainly. Yeah, I mean, just to, I mean, this is not like the most important thing, but just to give you a taste of what it was like, you know, you squat to use the bathroom, um, you know, you would regularly get sick, you'd boil the water twice over, and then they put it in a bottle, and then you keep it in the fridge for a couple of hours before it's drinkable. You know, the hot water, there's no sort of, there's no showers, right? You take the hot water, you put it in the same stove that you would take a bath in. We would do this ourselves, and then you'd mix it with titrate with the right amount of cold water, and and that would be what the daily bath would look like. And, you know, no air conditioning. And, you know, I mean, this is, it's not like a, it's not like a sob story. No, I know, it's but it's just fascinating it. to be fascinating. exposed it's to that at a young age and to realize. Right. And, that was, and that was a big part of our upbringing growing up, certainly through about sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Then once you get to high school, we maybe went, even in high school, we'd go for shorter amounts of time. And then, and then for a number of reasons, you know, things change in life. And then, you know, a lot of our remaining relatives there either died or moved to the United States and things changed. But it was it was two different worlds, and I think it was important to my dad. The funny thing that stands out in retrospect is that, like, we were certainly not rich by American standards. But my parents, having come here, one's an engineer, one's a one's a doctor. When we go back to India, that would definitely have been wealthy by Indian standards in the 1990s. But he was particular that even when we went there, we would travel from one city to another that we wouldn't go in first class rail. And by the way, first class rail in India is like not first class Amtrak here. We're talking in the 90s. He was particular we would go in third class. And so I, I don't know, I guess I can't speak for him and I haven't really talked to him about the psychology of it in depth and what was going on there. But I think that there's an element of it that was like, okay, I came here and I'm giving you know, this first world upbringing to my kids and we're working very hard and giving them that better life. But I kind of want them to experience a little bit of the discomfort. And not take it for granted, that, basically. And not take it for granted. Yeah. So I have to admit that I haven't had those conversations in depth and I'm probably overdue to do it. It's been a, well, I maybe think a few years I, that I've been thinking about I understand what's going through it. my dad's head. I understand it. I can't speak for him. Intuitively. Yeah. I think that immigrants that come to the U.S., like me, for example, and other people, uh, we love the place. It's amazing. Yeah. And part of us wants to say to people who live here and who are bashing the place, you know, you really don't know how great this country is, how how diverse, how tolerant, how energetic, how how free it is. And maybe it takes living somewhere else for a long time, coming from somewhere else to really appreciate that. So maybe your dad was just trying to get you to be aware of the United States and its privileges in a way that others might not be. I think my mom definitely fits that description. She's between the two is also the more, you know, vocal and expressive. Um, and so I think that I think you're definitely speaking for 
if not both of them, maybe both of them, and at least at least my mom was, I think, over time, a person who was very important to have gratitude to this country mm-hmm. for what is possible here in a way that's not in so many other countries around the world. But anyway, I think that that definitely did have the effect of giving me great gratitude for the United States. I talked about this a little bit in my first book, Woke Inc., and I think it does inform some of my perspectives from later in life that, you know, I mean, this is, you know, a little bit orthogonal to what you were asking about, but it's not unrelated that, you know, my parents, or certainly my grandparents, my dad's dad and my mom's dad both were British subjects, right, of colonial empire. And they were part of a revolutionary movement in India where they were literally of a subjugated to the British man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of the indignity and, and you know, in some cases, inhumane behaviors that come with came with that era in colonial India. And I think it does probably affect some of my, it's not the main thing that guides my views, but it, there's an element of it that has a certain impatience for the narratives of systemic racism to one particular breed where that, at the end of the Plinko chip game where you drop your Plinko and if it drops in one little slot there, you're eligible to talk about what the what the burdens of history have imposed on you despite the fact that you never experienced it. I mean, I never experienced that, so I have no claim on the victimhood that comes from being a British colonial subject. Far from it. I grew up in a middle-class upbringing in the United States of America, the greatest country that allows someone like me to succeed and enjoy the life that I have. But I think that if I look to my neighbors or my classmates you know, who might believe that they have a claim on something that happened to their great-grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents some odd number, an immeasurable number of years ago, there's probably a part of me that is impatient with that narrative, in part because of some of the experiences I had growing up and knowledge of the experiences that my own parents and grandparents had as well. And so that the, the know, generations, I, I the generations after trauma or after can can be fine. And I mean, for example, yes. my own family, if I take its roots back, mainly Catholics from Ireland who were terribly persecuted in the United Kingdom. We were barred from even holding public office until the late 19th century. Huge amounts of prejudice against Irish people and Catholic people in Britain. But it never occurred to me to invoke any of that because I grew up without that really. I mean, there was some of it, but not much. Well, I think part of the reason it doesn't occur to you, I I don't want to be presumptuous, Andrew, but you're a smart and... 360 degree thoughtful guy, but like, why does it not occur to you to do that? You, the culture does not invite you to embrace that narrative, actually, right? No, nobody, even if you did try to bring that up, nobody wants to hear your sob story of being some sort of persecuted Catholic in Ireland. How boring and irrelevant to the present day. And I think that there's an element of that for somebody who is of Indian American heritage or any other white adjacent identity. But if it fits a part of the reason why I think that certain people do wallow in that, let's just say the black victimhood narrative, you know, to not dance around the main one we're talking about here, although there's a version of this for sexual identity and for, for you know, gender identity too, is that when you have a culture that invites you to see yourself as a victim, then it's hard not to. And so a different way of putting this is take a younger version of yourself or myself. Let's say we then grew up in a culture in the United States that goaded us a little bit to say that, hey, you might have a better shot at getting into college. 
and you might have a better chance of getting a job and then getting a promotion on that job and then getting a raise, if you did lean into that a little bit, maybe it would have occurred to you <laughs> to talk more about your you know, Catholic background that disadvantaged you, or maybe it would occur to me to talk more about the colonialist oppression of my grandparents and their family if we have a culture that rewards that type of tale. And, and so in some ways, I think the stories we tell are the stories we're incentivized to tell. Yes, and, and, and universities part of what happens in this country. and colleges like we went to, having set up affirmative action, have already in some ways legitimized that very feeling and told you, in fact, that it's legitimate to feel those things yeah. and to bring them up at every opportunity. I mean, so the affirmative action kind of starts the process and then wokeness takes over in the in the because there is because it's structurally embedded in the very way in which you actually enter and are admitted to the university. So you 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 start I with think that's that. right. I think that's right. I think I go probably one step even like an inch further than that, Andrew, which is it's not just legitimizing a pre-existing impulse. Maybe there's some of that. I think that there's something about human nature where we're all there's an impulse in us that's prone to see ourselves as a victim. I think that I think there's probably some native hardwired impulse there. So there's a legitimization of that. But I think that there's something else going on, which is the creation of a victimhood narrative that literally would not have existed, but for the incentive structure that convinced you to have the idea to see yourself as such in the first place. So like, I think that without affirmative action, I don't think that we would have the level of black victimhood narratives that we do in the United States today. I, I don't think that that existed and then affirmative action legitimized it. Like, I... I, I I don't think that's the tr most of the essence of what's going on. I think most of the essence of what's going on is human psychology is a, is a fluid thing, right? And in ways that we don't always recognize, we are prone to see ourselves and tell ourselves the narrative that best advances our own material self-interest. And so in some very real sense, I think that we have created a new black victimhood narrative in the case of affirmative action and I don't want to pick on the racial version of this because I think this exists in so many different ways, to see yourself through that prism. Well, if you have achieved something by virtue yeah. of it in part, you then yeah. identify with that part of it. Whereas when I went to Oxford, for example, I'm the first person in my family to go to college or whatever, but I went, I got a scholarship to Oxford. Now, I got that. I felt like I got that by my own merit. No one ever mm -hmm. said... It's because you are male or white or what? No, there's no reason why you would have this, or you got admitted because you're you're Catholic or because you were you're an L, member of the LGBTQIA two S L W X Y Z plus community. <laughs> no, and that that creates a sense of your self esteem independent of your identity, which then forms at the very beginning of your life a sense of independence, of self reliance, of self esteem that's not based on things that other people have constructed for you. And that is, that's an incredibly important thing to go through life. Tell me, you, are, you went to a Jesuit high school. Um, I did. A, a yeah. seriously Jesuit high school, St. Xavier. Yes, I did. Now, your parents are uh, practicing. Uh, I, I'm not even, I don't, forgive me for not knowing this. But to, you have no reason to be to. a practicing <laughs> Hindu means what exactly? And, and yeah, my how parents, common and I, would I've it be? Let me just let me finish. Yeah. How common would it would it be for a practicing Hindu family to send someone to a Jesuit, send their kid to a Jesuit school? And what were the what were the values that they saw there? And what did you get from the Jesuits? 
So it was, so I'm, I'm a practicing Hindu. My parents are practicing Hindus. I, like many people, probably left viewing the, the practice of viewing myself as religious for most of my 20s, but for most of my life, call it, I've been, been Hindu. So, so the circumstances that led my parents to go there, it wasn't like they said, this is going to be the feature we want in our kids' education. It was more of a, despite that, we're still going to do it. Because I went to a relatively poor quality public school. I mean, if we're just speak in plain language, it wasn't, wasn't an excellent public school that didn't reward kids who were interested in academic excellence. In some ways, that was penalized. And I write about this a little bit in, I think, my my second book, the experience of you know, have getting pushed down a flight of stairs, for example, in seventh or eighth grade. That was among the instances that convinced my parents, for whom it was not an immaterial sacrifice, right? I mean, my dad was facing staring down layoffs under Jack Welch's tenure at GE right around those years. He went to night school in law school to be able to ensure job security with, you know, in absence of childcare and otherwise it was a real and St. X high school was the more affordable of the good private schools. You know, there was another one called seven Hills Academy or country day in Cincinnati that were far more expensive, probably twice the tuition of St. X, but we lived in one school district. And so we had the choice of either move, go to St. X or and that's about it because the other schools were out of economic reach. So they chose to send me to St. X. And I think that probably going in, I can't speak for my parents for sure, but I'm 90% sure of this. I think it would have been their preference for it not to have been a religious public school, religious school, but like just a better quality school than the public school that I'd gone through first through eighth grade. And in some ways, I think if I'm remembering now, as we're talking about this, I think there was probably even some anxiety that my parents had that like, was he going to convert or something? And you know, I don't think they were overly anxious about it, but I think that it was certainly a thought that occurred in the family to maybe ground myself in, the, in Hinduism a little bit more. But actually what we quickly discovered, all of us together, uh, you know, I think they would read the Bible with me, right? They're curious also in terms of let's get to what's being taught in the school that our value sets were actually very similar. I mean, we lived in what would have been called a conservative upbringing and lifestyle. Man marries a woman, has kids, stays married, raises them, makes sacrifices to raise kids. That was the story of my parents' upbringing of me and the family. And those were deeply aligned with the values that St. X High School would hope that their kids who graduate from there go on to live as adults serving others. I mean, the motto of the high school was men for others. This was deeply aligned with our family value set. And I think by the end of my freshman year, there was a deep sense of security that set back in, especially with my parents, to be like, okay, this could actually be a good thing. It's certainly not a bad thing. Was it all boys? It was all boys. Wow. Yeah. That's another it was all interesting dynamic to this that you that and, and the Jesuits also focus are quite serious about education. I mean, that's that's very kind of serious about the, education. Yeah. The, yeah. And I, I listened to and your intellectual I and mean, very intellectual obvious, absolutely. You know, approach to the study of religion. No, I know. Too. I, I mean, I, they taught other world religions at St. X High School, which is quite a thing. I mean, to teach, to have entire courses dedicated to studying Islam or Judaism or Hinduism within the context of a Catholic high school. And that was only available for the 12th graders. But still to include that in the upbringing or, or they would bring in like a speaker who was gay which today doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but in 1999 to 2003, for a Catholic high school to bring in was a big deal at the time. 
And so it was. I was. was I was one of the people that were being brought in at that point to the public (laughs) schools and and universities. But uh, yeah, no, that's the Jesuits, right? I mean, they really are, and they really do create a view that the mind can absorb anything, can deal with any argument or any alternative view, and try to understand it dispassionately. It's. It's. And that was. And that was native to my bringing. And I had such an attachment to the school that actually a few years ago at the invitation of the school's president went on the school's board. And so I've been serving on the board of Sanix high school until this presidential campaign when I took a hiatus from that, but, but it had enough of an impact in my life that in the limited ways that one spends one's time and energy, you know, I spoke back at the commencement again, a couple of years ago. So I've stayed close to the school. I listened to your, actually watched your own electorian speech. Oh, Um, that was the first time I spoke at a Sanix high school. Yeah. That was was a kind of fascinating speech you, you it was yeah. extremely okay. <laughs> you're extremely poised i mean that you're precocious before your years you talked of having a faith that had sort of brought in some aspects of catholicism in that speech you said you thought you believed in one god or at least you said that mm-hmm. did that worry your parents you've 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 suddenly absorbed something from the catholic tradition no i think i think it did not i mean i think that so to be clear in our Certainly, family's faith, we're monotheistic as well. We believe in one true God that manifests in many forms. And so it can, you know, Hinduism can, to the untrained eye, look like a polytheistic religion, and some people truly practice it as such, but that was not the faith tradition that I was raised in. I I do think that there are real differences to call out, right? I think the way our family would say it is that Christ is a son of God. That is different than saying Christ is the son of God. You know, and it was very interesting. I mean, I went to I go to a lot of churches these Sundays when we're going to places like Iowa and New Hampshire. I've also gone to Hindu temples when we travel, by the way, too. But I do think it's interesting. I'm the first Hindu serious candidate in the Republican Party. And, you know, I would like to think maybe I'm at this point a little less long shot than long sh- the version of the long shot than when we got started. But I think people are starting to take those questions of faith a little bit more seriously now. I get it a lot more when I'm polling at third now rather than we were polling at not at all at 0% in in March. And, And it's an interesting conversation because I think part of certainly many evangelical Christians believe that the path to God runs through Jesus Christ. And so in, in my faith, as a Hindu, it is entirely compatible from my perspective to believe in Christ as a son of God. But I also respect and understand that that is different from saying that Christ is the sole path to the Father. But I think that that's a long way of saying that, no, when I sort of say that I absorbed pieces of my Catholic education, did that bother or rankle my parents? No, far from it. I think what they probably saw because it was true, is I think it actually brought me into greater conviction in what the faith tradition was that I was raised in myself. Because if that's all you've ever seen, Mm -hmm. you don't know what to compare it to. But once you've tried on a different set of clothes, then you try the one that fits again. Then you realize why it actually fit. You don't know what a fit is until you've tried something that doesn't. How has that been when you've interacted with evangelical Christians? Do you think that there's been any sort of tension there? Or do they get that you're really coming from the same place, even though you might be a different sect, a different religion. Is, 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 has that come I, up at all in your... Oh, a lot. It's starting to more right now, okay. actually. As I said, that in the first phase of this campaign, not a ton, really, right? Because first it's just who, who the heck is this guy? 
you know, as of March, I was at 0.0%. Most people hadn't heard of me. But now, you know, especially after the first debate, Andrew, I think we've Ooh. seen this pick up quite a bit. I was giving a speech at the, you know, this, what was it called? Stand, vote, pray summit in DC a couple days ago. And all the, you know, other candidates spoke there too. I, I was, I spoke about the value of the individual family, nation, God as an alternative vision to race, gender, sexuality, and climate. And one of my, let's just say points of preaching to the Republican party is that we can't just be against what the other side puts on offer. And I think that that's a trap that the Republican Party has fallen into. I don't talk about Joe Biden on the campaign trail that much, for example, for a number of reasons. One is I don't think he's actually the person running the country. Second, I don't think I'm going to be running against him if I'm the nominee. But third is it misses the point. Most importantly, we have to offer an affirmative vision of our own. So I was talking about individual, family, nation, God. This is to an audience of 2,000 people, and someone in the back you know, yells out, which God, kind of in an angry mm. way. right? Mm. And it was interesting to me. And it... Usually in settings where that happens, if there's a microphone in the audience, I'll actually engage it. This was one of these preset forums where that wasn't the case, so I just had to keep moving through. But it's it's becoming more and more of a serious theme, and I welcome it. So I'd say three things about it, because I think that to say what is the evangelical Christian response is, you know, there are many different ones. Low resolution, right? right, right you know, right, exactly. Right. And so I think there are some people for whom I think this is a relatively small number. This is, I think this is a very small number, but I think it exists for whom it will just be impossible to vote for somebody who is not Christian to be the next president of the United States. And my attitude there to people who are honest with themselves about that and honest back with me about that fact is one of respect. Right? If that's where you are and you believe that that is the value set that it is important to have a commander in chief of the United States of America who believes that the only path to God runs through Jesus Christ and that that is fundamentally important to you for what you need the United States, the president of the United States of America to embrace as his belief system. And you're honest about that with yourself and, and even directly with me. I respect that. And I have, I think, deep, deeply at peace with the fact that that exists in this country. It's part of the pluralism of this country. And that view should be respected, right? I don't, want to look down on that view. I think that we live in a culture where actually part of the reason I think that there is, I think it's a, it's a very small portion of the total Republican base, but it's slightly bigger than it would be precisely because there has been such an assault on Christianity mm -hmm. and an assault on organized religion broadly, but Christianity in particular, that some of that I think is actually a reactionary response to the assault on Christianity itself, which makes me even more sympathetic to it. I, I am probably a more ardent defender of religious liberty and a defender in that cause against the assault on religious liberty than even many self, most self-proclaimed Christians in politics. But put that to one side. Then I think there's the people who are in the category of needing to know that it's somebody who shares the same value set in common, acknowledges that this country was founded, as I agree it was, on Judeo-Christian principles but to know that we share those same values in common. Do I actually believe in a God, one true God? Do I live my life accordingly in, in accordance with the Ten Commandments and Christian values and recognize the value that you would, in a Christian family, teach your son to grow up in? Am I going to have a president who I can tell my son that I want you to grow up and be like him in good conscience? These people did not, many of whom voted for Donald Trump, did not vote for him because they thought he was a Christian. They voted for him because they thought he would be the best 
president to carry forward and defend their values and appoint the right Supreme Court nominees and so on. I think these people, this is probably the largest component of, of our base, as my sense of things is, are going to be coming along with us. Many of them, I hope, if we do our job well for explaining the policies I stand for and other parts of what drive a political race, certainly religion is not going to be an obstacle. But I think an open and honest conversation can actually it, bring along it, many it of the It does seem that I would say that your life and the way you've behaved, the way you conduct yourselves is actually relatively compatible with broad Christian Deeply compatible. Values. Yeah. Well, but, Deeply what, compatible, but, actually. But the way Donald Trump, what he believes and how he acts and what he does is so deeply hostile to Christian values that it, it becomes very hard for me to understand how someone with that worldview that you've described, you could be broad-minded enough to vote for you, nonetheless does not care or seem to care whether Donald Trump shares any of their values, their Christian values. Um, well, I think so, for example, I'll give you a very things. simple thing. You know, yeah. a, a core part of Christianity is forgiveness. A core part of Christianity is if you get if someone hits you on the cheek, you turn around and give them the, the other cheek thousands of times. Donald Trump has specifically said that is the antithesis of his view of the world, which is that you must you must strike back ten times more and harder than you were struck. So there's a there's a clear, very profound hostility to Christianity in Donald Trump's worldview, and yet evangelical Christians are passionate in their defense of him. How do you square that? Well, look, I think that. This is actually going to be the third point that I was okay. going to raise and I think a category, which is that the role of commander in chief is different from pastor in chief. Yes. Right. And I think I think that this is in the last few weeks, I, th I think broadly much of, sharing your values of well, forgiveness, well, I, I, of toleration, of 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 the of the, the the dangers of wealth and power. This is a man who worships wealth and power and and actually demeans and has contempt for the weak and powerless. It's, it's the inverse of the Gospels that Trump preaches. And I just don't see how that's compatible with Christianity or even with Hinduism at any broad moral level. So I'll be... Hi know, there. Just to be frank this you. is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>